Hello, country crooners and the motherfucking shore patrol and all the ships at sea. (laughs) And welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. And our guest today, folks, this is, uh, he's one half of one of our very favorite podcasts. And really, if you listen to both, one of the clear models for this show. Uh, And that's the Pure Cinema Podcast. Subscribe if you somehow don't already. You won't be disappointed. He also hosts the wonderful Just the Discs Podcast, which is on YouTube and wherever fine podcasts are caught. Please join us in welcoming the charming, the knowledgeable Mr. Brian Sauer. Hi, Brian. Hello, sir. Very kind. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for coming on. And thank you for the shout outs you've given us elsewhere, which means so much and and helps a, a struggling little program like ours. It's a pleasure. And it's a it's a great format. It's a great idea. And it's my movie brain just automatically <laughs> goes crazy in a good way when I see yeah. a, anything that will allow me to separate movies into a certain group and then sure. figure out where to put them. And, and so by year is a great way to go. And I, I think it's a really neat format. Well, thank you. That really does mean a lot. Um, Okay, so let me start with the question I always ask to classic film lovers who come on the show, which is what was your kind of entry point? When did you make that transition between the sort of the casual moviegoer and the person whose brain works in the way that you just mentioned Um, and sort of and what brought that on? Well, I will say the brain stuff has come more recently within the last decade or so when it came to podcasting, because that really was was something I needed for the podcasting. It sort of developed into a muscle that I have now for that. But in terms of, you know, finding my way into cinema seriously, I would say uh, probably started around college-ish. Um, mm-hmm. Well, maybe a little before because I, I had some video store jobs in high school. And one of my first bit real jobs was at a Blockbuster franchise when I was in high school. And oh, then yeah. I took I took that and I went to uh, UW-Madison where we also had a State Street blockbuster location so then I worked there through my entire college years and then actually a couple years after college before we moved to California um so it was yeah so it was the video store thing started the things going but then when I got into college and started taking film classes uh and discovering the books of Danny Perry um the cult movies books and guide for the film fanatic my favorite book um I think that's when it really clicked into seriousness and it became a thing where, oh, he's got it right there. Look at that. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. I got the tattoo, man. I got the tattoo. Um, so, yeah. So it was around around then that I think I started to really get into cult movies, which led me down a certain path. And that's been one of the main paths in my life is cult film, classic film. Uh, and then some classes I took. I remember I took a Western class that really got me into Westerns. And, and it just really started to expand and blossom from there, I think. So when I was in my... Middle 20s, I would say, is when it really started. So on the off chance that that we have anyone listening who doesn't listen to your show, and it seems incredibly unlikely, but just in case, (laughs) um, tell us just sort of the the short version of of what Pure Cinema Podcast is and, and kind of what the title means in relation to that, which is one of the things I like about the show. (laughs) Um, Well, the title comes from a quote from my partner, Elric Kane. He just used to say that all the time on his podcasts, and it was just something that seemed appropriate. It's a little, it's, I'll admit it's a little highfalutin, but it's just one of those things where he and I are just really into it, like da- yeah. down to our DNA. So on some level, I don't apologize for it. Um, but in terms of what it is, uh, I mean, Elric Kane and I became friends 
through his podcasting. Um, he's had many shows over the years, horror related shows. And I became a fan and started to talk to him about movies that weren't horror. And he would do um, some discoveries lists for an old blog I used to run. And I started to realize we had a lot more in common in terms of that. And then we did an interview for a documentary I was working on about Danny Perry. And it really clicked. Like we just had a conversation and he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, would you ever want to do a show? And we worked out what it might be. And it's really... It's evolved some over the years, but really one of the guiding principles is, you know, something we got from Danny Perry, which is, you know, there's no high and low art as much as there's just stuff that you that gets you. And mm. so we have something on the show we call Five Films Because, and that is because we didn't want to get pigeonholed into a top five format per se, because you can always get people coming at you about what about this? What about that? Right. Right. And we just kind of wanted to undercut that. And also we wanted to just be able to talk about what we wanted to talk about. So right. uh, five films because it's just we bring to any topic we might be doing um, five movies we'd like to discuss. They may not all be masterpieces, but there's things about them we find interesting and compelling and we want to talk about them. So I find that pretty freeing to not have to think about what's the absolute best thing ever. Um Another focus of the show is discoveries. We're always trying to find new movies. Yep. We just dropped our big uh, film discoveries of 2023 episode, which yes. is our favorite to do. And it's so much fun to dig in and really find some stuff, sometimes obscure stuff uh, to talk about that really impacted us over the year. Uh, the other thing we do is we do director's episodes where we'll highlight. A spe- we did a two-parter of William Friedkin, but one of the other things that we do on the show is we pair movies. So, um, like, it, we call it sort of a video store for your ears. A lot of it is about, like, the conversations you might have with somebody behind the counter in the video store right. back in the days. And this sort of, if you like this, you'll like this. That's what pairings is about. So we talked about five classic, in this case, films from Friedkin, and then five films because and we paired each one with another film to kind of offer a you know a little something else to go with it but also give some people an idea of what kind of movie it is maybe you don't know that movie but you know the paired movie you know it's just a way in and another way to talk about other movies um so those are the main things we do on the show and we also do a um a rundown of the new beverly calendar we're the official podcast of the new beverly cinema here in los angeles a great rep theater uh, one of yep. the best in the world and uh, we're honored to go through um, their calendar every month. That's always a blast, too. Yeah. No, it's it really is a, a wonderful podcast. And, you know, I, I giggle at the idea that pure that the idea of pure cinema is somehow highfalutin because you guys certainly don't apply it in those ways. And one of the things that I love about your show is it really has sort of changed the way that I approach uh, older films, because so often it's about, okay, well, you know, this isn't a masterpiece, but here's this thing that's going on in it that's really interesting. Or here's this set piece that will just knock your socks off. And, you know, the idea of of plumbing the history and, and finding these, these little uh, performances or moments or, or things that are of note uh, and appreciating the picture for that. I, it really does sort of rewire your brain, especially when you're a critic who, who has to look at these things 
every day. It's I, I look at this stuff in a different way. And I, I, I attribute a lot of that to, to you guys and to, to listening to your show as faithfully as I do. Well, that's a true honor to hear that. I really love the new Beverly shows, the new Beverly yeah. episodes, but I end up tuning out of like half of those just out of pure jealousy that I oh. can't just immediately <laughs> FOMO go is and, and see them. It's just, I mean, I just like the 30 minutes in, I'm just like, all right, I, I can't, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. I totally get it. Like I, it's tough. And, and there is a part of those shows that we always wonder about what the broad appeal is. Although we do have a lot of people who listen outside yeah. of LA. Um, Cause it is fun to talk about those movies and, and Phil um, who programs there and is our co-host on those shows. He always encourages people to follow along at home. So I, yeah. there's, we're trying to be inclusive, but on that level, it is tough to, to be like, you're not going to be able to see this. Sorry. You know, that's, that's yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Even when I've seen the movies, I haven't seen them with Phil. You know, that's the like, <laughs> right. That's a different thing, man. It's a different thing. All right. So what year did you pick to talk about today and why? <laughs> it was tough, especially when you told me that the slate was basically clear and I yeah. could almost pick anything. Uh, yeah. That was I will admit that was a little overwhelming at first because uh, I was like, oh, I started looking back through old shows. I'm like, OK, there's one that's OK. What are they? And then when you told me you were starting over for this season, I was like, oh, OK. Uh, so basically what I did was I went back to like a big list I have on Letterboxd of some of my all time favorites. And I just started to sort of in a circular way sketch around certain movies. And I'll tell you, there's one specific one in this list. It's actually not my number one. It's my number mm. two um, that I was like. I want to talk about this year because of this movie. And then I started mm-hmm. just sort of, you know, branching out like what else is in this year that I like. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I recommend people do um, using Letterboxd is there's so many great people who create lists on Letterboxd of just thousands of different ideas and kinds of movies. But yeah. let's say, you know, for instance, I brought up the guide for the film fanatic. There's at least two lists that include the entire, I don't know, like 1500 some movies uh, right. from the guide for the film fanatic. So one thing you can do is you can separate those lists by decade. You can separate them by specific year. So then right. I just sort of went to like, oh, what what did Danny talk about in nineteen in nineteen seventy three, for instance? And I was like, oh yeah, okay. And so I just started to put things together. I watched a few things, and uh, nineteen seventy three just ended up being the one that really had enough uh, for me to talk about that hadn't been talked about on the previous episode and so i was like okay yeah this this might be the one and yeah there's just a lot of really great movies in the 70s in general but but this year was i don't know there's there's a there's quite a few also rands that didn't Mm -hmm. make the list it was just too strong a group to ignore ultimately yeah 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 i love the description of the process Brian. i just picture you with like a giant like whiteboard and you know thumbtacks and string <laughs> and it's a whole homeland situation okay so before we get to your very good top five list mike is going to take us on a quick walk through uh, what was going on in the news in 73 here's headlines nice i need to this is a new season i should get a newscaster voice maybe <laughs> Maybe I should get a newscaster yeah. voice. 1973. It was a hard year for most people. Something of that. Like I feel like that. United Press International. There you go. Uh, I love year it. in review. Uh, it was a tough year. It was really dominated by Nixon and mm-hmm. all of that sort of falling apart and all of that thing that we know. He signed the the Paris Peace Accords and we started leaving Vietnam. So that was great. 
Um, but Watergate was on its way. Everything was terrible. OPEC uh, members announced that they were going to start restricting the flow of crude oil, and Richard Nixon asked people to stop buying gasoline between Saturday night and Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And America said, I know it's expensive, but can I get some? <laughs> <laughs> Roe v. Wade was 1973. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, are we going to do Like, I feel like it's impossible not to do the we settled that joke, even though I feel like, you know, we already did the we settled yeah, that joke, we right? we did. We did. Yes. Uh, another big event in 1973 was Wounded Knee. About 200 Oglala Lakota Native Americans and members of the American Indian Movement began their occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota in February of 1973. And that is a big story that actually should have way more movies about it. Yep. Right? Like, at what point does, like, the, do the, like, Res Dogs team get to start making, like, dramas? There we go. You know, because that's going to be a big one. Uh, Vice President Agnew resigned. Should we make a list of the things that Vice President Agnew did before he had to resign? <laughs> I think you. I think you can just like put in a ding sound effect after you say each of them. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned on uh, October 10th while under investigation for criminal conspiracy, bribery, extortion, and tax fraud. All of which he was extremely guilty of and had used his office to further his criminal gains. Can you imagine how guilty he was to have quit? Like, Vice President, you don't have anything to do but be corrupt. Yeah. Anyway. Maybe he was the best Vice President ever. Hot take. Spiro Agnew. Best Vice President ever. He really, uh, he really used his time. One of the few political scandals of the era that Spira was not involved in was Watergate, which escalated throughout 73. Highlights included former White House aide Alexander Butterfield's July disclosure that President Nixon had used an Oval Office recording system to tape record potentially incriminating conversations. In sports, the Dolphins built the D.C. team with the racist name to win the Super Bowl. The Knicks beat the Lakers four games to one. The Oakland Athletics beat the New York Mets four games to three to win the World Series. And George Foreman defeated Joe Frazier to win the World Heavyweight Championship in the so-called Sunshine Showdown in Kingston, Jamaica. That is not as well-known. That is the not the most mm -hmm. well-known of the boxing names from the 70s, the Sunshine Showdown. That sounds yep. more like... Uh, like a Bob, like if Bob Marley did the, the 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 soundtrack for a Clint Eastwood movie yeah. or a Sergio Leone movie, even better, it go. would be called Sunshine Showdown. Yeah, Foreman would be the champ for two more bouts before facing Ali in the Rumble in the Jungle, and we all know what happened there. That's sports and that's headlines. All right, thank you, Mike. Brian Sauer, you ready to do a top five? I'm ready. All right, so uh, so we're doing a ranked list, which uh, which we always enjoy. Take a stand, uh, stake it out, and make it. Uh, so what then, Brian, is your number five movie for 1973? Oh, I should just say at the top. I mean, the rank is there, but there's not a lot. I love all these movies, so it's yeah. not to say that there's like, this is that much better than this. Yes. It's just... Uh, anyway, I'm going to start with um, Herbert Ross's The Last of Sheila. That was The Last of Sheila. That was what they thought anyway. Until they started playing Sheila's game. Tom thought he could beat the game. Don't touch. Christine played for the prize. Oh, 
glass of water and a couple of whiskey. Okay. <laughs> Clinton was the master of the game. I call it the Sheila Green Memorial Gossip Game. And this one, uh, I think, has been made a little more prominent by the fact that Ryan Johnson's definitely a fan. He's talked yes. about it. Actually, even on our show, back when we had him on, when Knives Out came out. Yeah, um, good episode. Uh, he was he was so much fun, man. Talk about a great guy. Um, and I would say it's even more influential on Glass Onion. If you look at Glass mm-hmm. Onion and that and this movie, you're going to see that there's definitely some similarities. Um, but it's a really great whodunit with like just an incredible cast of you know it '70s actors. Um, but I should say at the top, one thing that's really interesting is it's written by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins, and apparently. Um, they were both, but Sondheim especially, really big fans of you know whodunit games. And I guess as early as the '60s, you know Sondheim was doing sort of uh, you know whodunit kind of mysteries with um, folks he knew, and it sort of ended up parlaying into this screenplay sort of somehow. And anyway, he's re- they're really good because they put together a it's- great whodunit. With it's a great si- script. Like it's right? a really smart, funny, tight script. Like that you would think any you know the, that you would think was the work of some seasoned screenwriter, as opposed to just sort of a couple of guys who were moonlighting. Kind of. Absolutely, it's one of my among my favorite scripts of the seventies. I think it's really, really strong. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, just to give the idea, basically, you have uh, we open on a some kind of a party being thrown by a producer. Uh, played by James Coburn, and a woman is hit by a car. We don't know the significance of that. Uh, cut to uh, some time later, uh, a bunch of we see a bunch of people who will be the players in this story uh, that are getting invited to this uh, get together on his yacht. Again, this is where the glass onion parallel really starts right. to line up. <laughs> right. Um, but but so w- w- the people you have in this, uh, you know piece are the Clinton Green that's James Coburn he's the producer his guests are Alice Wood she's a an actor uh, played by Raquel Welch and mm-hmm. her talent manager husband Anthony Wood played by a very young Ian McShane uh, very then you young. have a secretary turned talent agent Christine played by Diane Cannon who is an awful person but gosh she plays it really well yeah she does uh, and then you have a screenwriter, uh, Tom Parkman, played by the great Richard Benjamin, and his wife, Lee, played by Joan Hackett, uh, as well as a film director, Philip Dexter, played by James Mason. And so this trip, they're getting together to go on this wonderful yacht called the Sheila, and they, um, you know, Clinton turns it into a game, basically. He gives everybody a card with a a bit of um, a secret about somebody and he basically will go in, they'll stop in little ports along the way and they'll have like a little mystery to solve in each of the ports and it becomes more and more intense. And I don't really want to give away too much more than that. Honestly, I really think yeah. the, the, where the game goes and the last hour of the movie, I forgot like how early one of the big things happens and sort of sets the last hour into motion um, and that's really great. But again, very clever script, smart characters, self-aware characters, you know, just really, really well played. But they 
the the James Coburn character is such a son of a bitch and is so <laughs> mean to every single person on this trip. He just he's just an asshole and he really owns it. Um, but everybody's yeah. great, really great in yeah. this. And um, yeah, just a wonderful whodunit. Again, one of my favorite sort of whodunits of the seventies and. Um, just love it. Just absolutely love the movie. So I, I, I wanted to get like sort of different kinds of movies. I think that was the other reason to pick 73 is I was finding like, oh, I can do different kinds of things. Here's a whodunit to start it off, you know? Right, right, right. Um, yeah, well, I mean, and I think what's sort of terrific about it too, is that there's such a, a lightness to it, um, and to the way that it, the sort of sophistication of it and the way that it mixes the, the mystery and the comedy. And it really reminded me, and I, I, I wasn't thinking of this the first time I saw it, but when we were having you on, I know how much you love the Thin Man movies. I love them. And it, it, this movie feels in many ways, the way that those do. Um, it has that very, that that lightness, that sort of uh, you know offhand comedy, the slight drunkenness. Um, I would be very surprised if if they weren't looking at this one at, at those movies as sort of an inspiration for this one as well. Um, tell me a little bit about Herbert Ross because I he directed this and he's not someone we talk about a lot, but his name is on a lot of significant movies. Agreed. In this, yeah, year. he's a guy I think gets a little underrated for sure. I, I think the first one I came across from him was Play It Again, Sam. Um, but mm-hmm. even this year, I'm discovering things from him. Uh, Fun City Editions put out T.R. Baskin, which I thought was great. Which is really great. Really good movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, he he's a yeah. guy who is really, he's done so much stuff um, that I think people really overlook him. I, I Maybe it's partially because I don't want to say he's not a stylist, but he is a very functional filmmaker that doesn't yes. get in the way of the storytelling. Um, and, and, and that's, yeah. that's meant as the highest compliment I can give him. But I mean, he's done comedies. He's done uh, like the 7% solution is a great Sherlock Holmes movie. Mm-hmm. And then you get into the eighties yeah. and he's doing like my blue heaven and secret of my success and footloose, of course, and pennies from heaven. I mean, he's just really an interesting guy. I think a lot of the times, especially in the seventies, you know, he was working so often with people like Neil Simon, who had such a strong voice as a screenwriter that in that kind of auteurist era, he might've sort of been dismissed as, as kind of a journeyman, which he was, but I think in a good way, I think in an, in a, he, his is always a name that I pay attention to when it comes up in those. Yeah, absolutely. Especially after I saw, I think I saw last the Sheila for the first time in about 2012 and that's when it really like mm-hmm. locked in for me, like, oh, I should ne- I need to pay attention to him because this is such a well made yeah. film. You know, uh, it's a great script, yeah. but it's a really well made and well cast film. So uh, he's good with cat. I feel like Agreed. he's good with casting too. All right, so Brian, then what is your number four pick for nineteen seventy three? Okay, my number four, and by the way, um, all of these have been talked about on Pure Cinema at one point or another. These are movies that we really like a lot and um, anyway so this is a big one for Elric and I it is Scarecrow from 1973 of course Um, I'm used to saying years on uh, pure cinema it's not necessary (laughs) here behold the captains of industry the prospective owners of Maxie's Car Wash Pittsburgh Pennsylvania maybe Maxie's Car Wash Car Wash yeah okay for every car there is dirt Max and Lion the only difference between them and the Rockefellers is a few hundred million dollars. 
and about 1,500 miles. This one, really something. Um, from director Jerry Schatzberg, who, another name that uh, a lot of people don't know, but a guy who made a ton of great movies, including The Panic yep. Needle Park, which preceded this one, and um, yep. was really something, and a big breakout for Pacino. In fact, I'm pretty sure I heard that that Coppola it, saw him in Panic and was like, I need to get him for The Godfather. Yep. Um, but yeah. this movie is really special. It is a road movie with Gene Hackman and Al Pacino. As far as I know, I don't think they did another movie together, but there may be something I'm forgetting. Nope. Um, but it is shot by Vilmos Zygmunt in widescreen. It's beautiful. There's a Warner Archive Blu-ray you can check out. Um, and it's about two drifters, basically, who are bumming their way across the country trying to get to Pittsburgh um, because the Gene Hackman character, um, Max, is um, he has dreams of opening a car wash. And uh, yep. Pacino's character, uh, Francis Lionel Del, Del Buki, uh, goes by Lion. Um, they meet each other in a really great opening. One of my, f- among my favorite openings of a 70s movie is them, they're basically on the opposite sides of this barren highway and uh, yeah. Gene Hackman sort of crawls in, gets hung up on a barbed wire fence and ends up at the edge of the road. And uh, Pacino's character is there. And, you know, Hackman's character, we find out he was in the joint. He is, you know, he's got some money, but he's got to find his way across. He really is a grouch, doesn't really trust or want to talk to anybody and definitely does not want to talk to the lion character. But they, <laughs> there's a great sort of meet cute in the way that... Uh, the Pacino character sort of breaks the ice and ultimately they end up connecting. Um, but they're just great together. They, they're two very different kinds of characters. Um, the lion character is very much a guy who believes in disarming people with humor and the the title of the film, I won't spoil, but it comes from one of his big observations, uh, about scarecrows. And, um, they are just so good together in this. Whether it's fair or not, like you think of those guys at that era in French Connection Serpico, you know, like you think about like obviously Godfather, you know, there's like there's a handful of movies that really define those guys at that time. And because they were so good and so, you know, they've become so classic. And these characters in this movie that came out in the same time as all those other movies you think about. And and even in that description that you're giving of Hackman's character, sounds like a lot of other characters he played. This is nothing like any other movies they were in in that time yeah. or other times, not like ca- any other characters they played. I mean, even, you know, the scene, because they get locked up and there's, you know, um, things seem to be going well for the Pacino character initially, and then things go very, very badly for him right. at some point. And, and the way he played that, it was so di- I mean, you know, it was so different than Needle Park, than Hustle- yeah. Hustlers, than, you know, right. th- let alone not to even get anywhere near The yeah. Godfather, <laughs> right. right? That defining thing. I just like, I sat down sort of without meaning to expecting some sort of French connection, panic and Needle Park, you know, combo thing. And that was not what I was served. Not at all. Not at all. It was really surprising and really great. It's a modest movie. Oh, that's a yeah. good point. But but Mike, you make a really good point. They really don't these guys don't play characters like this maybe ever again, really. And I hadn't thought about that yeah. specifically. But especially in the context of French Connection, Serpico, Godfather, it's so much different than that. 
it's so 73 too. Like the dream is to get to Pittsburgh and open a car wash. I was just like, man, we're really marinate. We're really taking a bath in, in 1973 yeah. with this yeah. movie. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. just something that the way that it meanders through and we run into some great character actors like Eileen Brennan and, and speaking of lockup, I mean, one thing you never do is you never trust Richard Lynch. That's just not a good idea. You know? That'll always get you in trouble. So, yeah, he's great. He shows up. Yeah. But I love that the movie really at its core is about friendship and how strong those bonds can be. And it's incredibly moving. I will say just a sl- it's not a spoiler, but the- there's a sort of a darker turn in the back part of the movie. Um, but it really solidifies the friendship in a way. And I just love that about it. It's just an incredible film and, and one that seems to be well, relatively well logged on Letterboxd. I do use Letterboxd a lot as a gauge for how many people have, you know, seen this recently. Um, you know, and that, and it seems like some people have seen it. Uh, I think it was streaming on HBO max for a while. It's not anymore, unfortunately, but you can stream it just about anywhere if you want. Uh, but yeah, just a great, great movie with two of our greatest actors together, uh, for the first and only time. So really something special. Brian Sauer, what is the number three movie on your top five for 70? Number three is Save the Tiger. First the Buffalo went, then the Indian went, then the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, Harry Stoner is the last of an endangered species. Harry, we're going to have to have a talk. It's a criminal act, Harry. You screamed in your sleep. That's the second time this week. Awesome, Harry. Awesome. This is a major felony. So You're talking about 20 years. On, it is the same accommodation. It's a criminal act, Harry. Harry, tell me, what do you want? Another season. Jack Lemon in Save the Tiger. Rated R. Starring Jack Lemon in maybe his best performance. One of my favorites. Directed by John G. Avildsen, who would go on to do Rocky. But I got to tell you, I like this movie more than I like Rocky, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, this movie is, uh, one of a genre that I think Elric and I both find ourselves drawn to these days. And it's kind of like a midlife crisis movie in some sense. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but it's just a great story with a a really good supporting cast. Um, one of the main supporting characters that I love is, uh, Jack Guilford, who's a guy so so good good and does not get nearly enough praise for the amount he's in. They might be giants. And I love him in that movie too. Um, but Mm -hmm. lemon plays Harry stoner and he is a guy who runs a, um, textile clothing manufacturing, um, sort of company shop warehouse. And, um, he's having a really tricky day, uh, on this particular day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But one thing I love about the movie is it's one of those that opens, like showing him wake up. You see him talking to his wife She's going away. Um, you know, you, you get a sense of their relationship, their physical relationship, which maybe is lacking. And and then he goes off and picks up some hippie girl on the way to the office. And that com- comes into play later and um, finds his way into Jack Guilford, who's his accountant. And we find that there is a couple things going on. One, they're about to do their big annual show, which is where they, all the orders get placed. And that's how they get a lot of their money. Uh, but he's struggling with their, they owe a bunch of money and they probably can't make it up. And they end up coming to the conclusion that maybe they have to do a little something um, very extreme. 
mm-hmm. getting an arsonist involved to maybe deal with getting some insurance money to help them. And Jack Guilford's character is not happy about that. But there's a lot of stuff happening. There's a new uh, client in town that needs a hooker and just all kinds of crazy mm-hmm. things that he's juggling. Um, but there's something about this character that is so moving to me. The way, the point he's at in his life, the wistful nature that he has in certain moments, um, the PTSD he's dealing with that comes out in some awkward ways. Uh, it's just a really, I mean, Powerhouse doesn't really cover it. It's just something else in terms of this performance. Yeah. But it's sort of like a day in his life. And I just love a very 70s feeling movie and a movie that um, I think didn't have a huge budget, was definitely a passion project for many involved. And you can feel that. Um, but like I said, Jack Lemon, one of my favorite actors of all time. I love The Apartment. I love so many of his performances. But this one... At where I am right now is one that just absolutely sings to me, and I can't, I yeah. can't get it out of my head when I'm still thinking about it. And I think Jason, you might have watched it for the first time. Is that right? You know, here's the thing you you talked about this phenomenon fairly recently. I want to say on your last bonus episode that thing where like you spend years going, oh yeah, I've seen that. Oh yeah, all um, the time. And you're and you're, and you're just <laughs> sure that like you know in your twenties or something you took it home from the video store one night or whatever. And I was dead ass that I had seen Save the Tiger to an extent that I think I didn't go back to listen because I'm going to be embarrassed if I did. I think I even dinged this Oscar win in, in the last 1973 show. Um, and I put it on just sort of as a refresher and I'm, yeah, it's that thing you talked about like five minutes of like, Nope, I've never fucking nope. seen Happens this. Happens to me all the time. Um, <laughs> it's great. It's a great performance. It is not to be sort of dismissed as like, Oh, well, you know, uh, the they gave it to the lesser of, you know, of all of these iconic performances. It's a terrific piece of work. Um, I think one, one, you know, I, I'm a huge Glengarry Glenn Ross mm. guy. And this, I think is, would be really interesting to watch on a double with Glengarry oh, because yeah. this very much feels like the, the first part of that lemon performance in Glengarry yeah. Glenn Ross. Like when it was all <laughs> starting to go south for that guy. I like that. Um, it's a great, it's a really terrific performance. And I, and also, you know, when we mention John G. Avildsen, like, you know, the go-to is Rocky, obviously that's one of the iconic American movies. I think this movie is, is happening in a more interesting conversation with the movie he made right before it, which is Joe, um, which we've talked about on the other podcast that this feels very much of a piece with the non Joe stuff in Joe with the, you know, sort of frustrated businessman generation gap stuff, uh, especially in the scenes with the hippie. Oh, chick, yeah. Um, where she gets in the car and asks him if he wants to fall. <laughs> and I'm sorry, you know, can we bring back ball? <laughs> like, I think we're all tired of the sexual euphemisms of our present day. I think ball is poisoned for is positioned for a comeback. I'm with you. Uh, I think we're all ready for it. All right, great. Um, but yeah, save, <laughs> save the tiger. Fa- fantastic piece of work. Uh, really moving. Um, and uh, Lemon just fucking owning it. All right, uh, Brian, what is your number two movie for 1973? Okay, my number two, the ground zero for this list. Um, one yes. of my very favorites, and it's a tough movie in a lot of ways, But and I sometimes struggle with tough movies as favorites because you, you don't always want to come back to them, but there's something about 
this tough movie that allows me to come back. I think there's a, enough comedy in it uh, yeah. th- mixed in with the drama and the sadness uh, that it allows me to come back in. Anyway, the movie is Payday. Meet Maury Dan. He's a star, honey. I don't hang around Nashville waiting for Johnny Cash. He's getting along all right. She's a country girl. He wants a piece of the gate next time out. People in hell want ice water, too. He gets the best things in life. We only pass this way once. Might as well pass by in a Cadillac. It is a very special movie to me in a lot of ways. One factor is that it's one of the first movies I remember seeing at the Egyptian theater here in Los Angeles when I moved Mm. to California circa 99 or 2000. Um, My roommate and I went to see it on a double bill with Cisco Pike, which is another movie I considered for another year list because that's a great, great (laughs) movie. Uh, But at the time, these movies were... That's a good pairing. That's a really good pairing. Truly one of my favorite double bills I've ever seen, let alone uh, recently. Um, But it was... Those were so rare at the time, and now you can get, you know, at least a DVD of this and a Blu-ray of Cisco Pike, uh, but back then you couldn't see them at all, and this movie just floored me. Um, the basic premise is that you have Rip Torn in, I mean, talk about another virtuoso. Uh, yeah. I mean, Man, he, yeah. he is, I think he's pretty much said this is his favorite of everything he's done. He plays yeah. uh, Maury Dan, who is a country singer, I would say second rate sort of a mm-hmm. almost made it, but never really made it kind of country singer. Yeah. And we are with him for about 36 hours. And so we're getting a look at sort of behind the scenes of him touring the honky tonks and the other things he's dealing with, um, you know, in the South. And he is just a real talk about a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> but one of the most charismatic pieces of shit in cinema, I think, yeah. uh, because he just owns it. So we open with him and his band singing at this little um, divey place. And, you know, we get to see him. Uh, he, he did his own singing. He sort of talks, sings his way through it. But he I think he he He's makes, totally convincing. He, he pulls it off. It's a great it's such a great character. He's so um, confident and so fakely humble when he needs to be Mm -hmm. and he's just he's just he's just incredible in this character um just doing awful things to uh women in this there's multiple you know there's a scene where he's having sex with a woman he's brought along in his stretch limo with his girlfriend in the car asleep you know like that's the kind of thing we're dealing with this kind of guy but i mean the, the behind the scenes is all kinds of fun stuff like he goes bird shooting one day and gets in a fight with one of his band members about his mom not caring for his dog. Oh, and his mom, he's her drug dealer, you know, like just shit like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then kowtowing to local DJs who like definitely don't care for him. God, uh, I love that scene. That's a great yeah. scene. Um, yeah. And then, you know, meeting some young kid who sees him at a restaurant, you know, um, where he gets called out by somebody that, I won't go into the specifics. I'm giving away the whole plot here, but there's just so much great stuff in this behind the scenes of this guy's life. Uh, and it has a really impactful ending. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I love what he brings to this character. He really just absolutely lives in this guy. And it's just a remarkable film. Another one yeah. that I just, I can't stop talking about. There's a great wrong, real 
podcast episode where they talk all about this one. Um, but two things I should note. It's directed by Daryl Duke, who's a big favorite of ours at Pure Cinema. He did The Silent Partner, and he did one of my favorite discoveries of the year was this movie called Griffin and Phoenix, which is a TV movie mm. with um, Joe Clayberg and... Um, oh, and Peter Falk, he did Peter that? Yeah. Oh, shit, I've seen that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, he's... Great. he's He's good. He's yeah, he's like, very good. He, it's not a huge filmography, but everything this guy did was like worth watching. Yeah, very solid. Tarantino likes a TV movie he did with Culp called uh, Cry for Help. He's he's a really okay. interesting guy. Uh, and the songs, uh, just in case you didn't notice, are written by Shel Silver, Silverstein. So that's an oh, interesting wow. <laughs> wrinkle to this movie. Um, nice. But yeah, it's amazing. It's just an amazing movie that really sticks with you. Jason, I saw you really liked yeah. it, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. I, man, I I was, I mean, this is one that's been on my watch list for years, mostly because of you, because like you guys never miss an opportunity to sort of evangelize for it on, on pure cinema. And it's just, you know, I just kept meaning to get around to it. Came in, and so I finally had an excuse to watch it. Uh, it's so and you touched on this a little bit, it's so lived in, you know, like it feels so authentic, like every detail of, of this life uh, and this career feels uh, researched and, and uh, marinated, but then just sort of thrown off and to, 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 to achieve both of those things at once, I think is, is really difficult and, uh, and incredible. And yeah, Rip Torn is just, he's amazing. Like he never, I don't think until maybe towards the end got the credit he deserved as, as, as one of the best actors of his generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is, uh, just a, a towering performance. Um, I, I'm not sure this one is st sort of, it's still just DVD. We don't even have a Blu-ray of this one. No right? Blu-ray. Yeah. That's the tricky part. I think that's why a lot of people haven't seen it. I think there's a rip on YouTube, mm -hmm. but yeah. the DVD is the only way physically to own it. Um, yeah. and I'm really shocked that nobody's picked it up, but I think it's still one of those that's just a little enough under the radar that people aren't um, paying enough attention to it. But boy, it needs a nice Blu-ray, and I'd be first in line to pick it up if someone put it out, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, seek it out because because uh, it, it's worth worth the effort. All right. So then the number one, the the one that ranked even higher than The Great Payday. <laughs> yeah. What is it, Bright Sour? Well, that is going to be the last detail. Hal Ashby's film... What the hell did he do? Kill the old man? <laughs> Robbery. How much did he lift? Forty dollars. Tried to lift the polio contribution box. Yeah. Polio boxes, the old man's old lady's favorite do-gooder projects. She took it very seriously. Where are we going, Chief? Fortunate Naval Prison. Good duty for you guys. They're gonna get him there, all right. But first, they gotta take care of a few details along the way. Um, I mean, this is one that I also was circling around for this year, uh, but you know, it's an all timer for me and it's, it's a classic for a reason. Uh, it is Ashby on the, more or less on the heels of, uh, Harold and Maude working with Robert town who has yet to do, uh, Chinatown. Uh, he mm -hmm. would do that after this. He's adapting mm -hmm. a, a book, but he does a great job. It is obviously a story about two petty officers in the Navy, uh, played by Jack Nicholson, and a really great turn from Otis Young, who I don't mm -hmm. haven't seen in a ton of other movies. Um, yeah. And they they are assigned to take a young man, uh, Meadows, played by a young Randy Quaid, to prison. In uh, I want to say they're going to Portsmouth. I can't remember where they're going. 
uh, where they're coming from now. I, I forget, but basically they have to run him to the prison. Coming, coming from Newport. From, going to Newport Portsmouth. to Portsmouth. They're in Thank the Navy. <laughs> they're going from one port there to another. <laughs> so, yeah, so these two guys uh, are just great characters. Jack Nicholson plays, uh, does he have a first name even? Uh, Billy, I guess is his first name. Uh, <laughs> Billy Badusky, a.k.a. Badass. Yeah. And great Ode- name. And Otis Young plays um, Mule Mulhall. People just call him yeah. Mule. These two guys have never really hung out before, but they really connect in doing this project. And basically Nicholson, once they get the project or this assignment says, okay, we're going to get this per diem. We have a week to do this. Let's just run him on up there really quick and then take his per diem and our per diem and just spend it and take our time getting back. And, and Mule is like, that sounds great to me. They meet the kid. They find out, uh, from the great Clifton James, uh, great opening. He's the master at arms at the, place where they're stationed and he tells them the assignment he's wonderful basically any movie that opens with clifton james giving a little speech i'm in really (laughs) and he's got some great great dialogue there um but basically you find out randy quaid's character is a chronic kleptomaniac he tried to lift the polio box at the local uh i guess the church or whatever they have on this base 1973 (laughs) baby the polio box box. (laughs) but they but the problem with that is it's forty dollars uh, which you yeah. find out he didn't even get. But the bigger issue is that it is the 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 head the head commander's wife's favorite charity. So he gets eight years in a brig for this forty dollar yeah. non theft. Um, yeah. And so they kind of immediately are kind of like, "Ooh, that's rough," you know. That's a rough sentence for especially for forty bucks. So there's a little sympathy from them to start. But we what we start to see as they go is that especially the Nicholson character gets more and more sympathetic to the Meadows character. And they basically start to decide, well, maybe we could we could take an extra little bit. Let's, let's stop off and get some beers for him. It's like an interesting combination of a hangout and a road movie, two, two kinds of movies I really enjoy, and just really genuine feeling uh, characters and Nicholson and truly a big breakout. I mean, he'd already done Easy Rider. He'd already done um, Five Easy Pieces. But this one, I think, is like an explosion. It's just such yeah. a gregarious, um, noticeable character. And the other thing about the movie is that it was pretty remarkably dirty for its time. Mm-hmm. I think that the F word fuck is used in excess of 60 times uh, throughout the course of this movie. And I think it's almost Jack's first line has fuck yeah. in it. It's like yeah. his second line says fuck. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of swearing, even... Uh, in 73, I think this was a pretty extreme R-rated movie in terms of the language. I mean, they are sailors, so it's they're definitely sure. trying to be accurate that's with that. Literally what, you know, that's the expression, a curse like a sailor. You got to have your sailor's curse. I don't know exactly. what people were surprised by here. Exactly. They, this movie lives up to that for sure. Um, but really for me, it's just such an incredibly, again, a movie about friendship. I think that's another thing that runs through some of these, and that was an unintentional thing. You want to be a 26-year-old in 1973. This is what I'm figuring <laughs> I think you're right. List. Like, you want to be, like, the bass player in the band. <laughs> you want to be, like, you know, mule. You want to be, like, 26, an adult but unattached, yes. and just sort of, like, living in the world yeah. in 1973. I, I think, I think, yeah, I think you're onto something that. there, Mike. I think you're onto something. Um, Who amongst yeah, us? 
<laughs> but yeah, it's it's just I mean, among a career and even just a seventies run of incredible films, you have Ashby starts with the landlord in nineteen seventy, then he goes to Harold and Maud, then this, then Shampoo, again with Town in seventy five, Bound for Glory, Coming Home, being there. It's an incredible run. I think yeah. this is my favorite Hal Ashby movie, um, full stop. And wow. it's a big one for, uh, you know, um, Alexander Payne. Uh, it mm-hmm. definitely in watching the, another reason I thought it apt to pick this movie is the holdovers obviously came out just late last year. One of my favorite films of the year mm-hmm. from last year. And I felt some last detail in it when I watched it. And sure definitely. enough, um, Alexander Payne had confirmed that they, I think they even watched it, uh, before they made it. But he says, and he's all over the Blu-ray and 4K for last detail. He has an introduction, which is great. And he does another little conversation about it where he talks about how he watches it about once a year. And, you know, he loves Ashby. And I think he, as people have said, he emulates Ashby in his own special way. And this movie is definitely one that he's sort of channeling for the holdovers in some ways, I think. So, um, it's great that it's still feeling resonance now as recently as that film. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I just absolutely love it. The, the the camaraderie between the three guys that you feel throughout the course of the movie is just so compelling and so powerful. Uh, they're just, it's so, it's so goddamn funny though, too. I mean, it just makes me laugh yeah. like crazy every time. So just yeah. a real gem. One of the best of the seventies for my money. I hate to have the same comment that I made about Scarecrow, but like I grew up in the eighties. Like I think of Randy Quaid as the national lampoon character. <laughs> You right. know, like just my first I don't even try to that's just my first sort of real association with him and to the, he was this he's great and I mean you know Chad Nicholson's very good but you sort of know that's gonna happen right you know you're sort of like well you're watching Otis Young play off of him yeah. like this guy's really holding his own yeah, right yeah, yeah. but Randy Quaid is just so heartbreaking and like relatable mm-hmm. somehow mm-hmm. years after you know yeah. I don't know really really blew my yeah. mind in that yeah he is fantastic in it agreed the only other thing I would add, and, and I think this is maybe one of the best movies to make this case for, you know, the great filmmakers of the 70s, the Scorsese's, the Coppola's, you know, anybody you want to run down. I have a pretty easy time articulating what they do, what is special about them, what sort of pieces of, of cinema they're commanding and, and, and orchestrating in their best work. A gun to my head, I can't tell you what Ashby does. Like I, I you know, and I've 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 ingested all of these movies. I've seen them all more than once. I want to understand it, and I I can't articulate it. There's just some there's just a specificity to his touch, and to the his approach to the material, the way that he lets it live and breathe on screen, um, while always feeling his presence somewhere near the edge of the frame. I don't know what it is that's so good about him, but it's, this is one of the, one of the movies where it's really like, it would be so easy for this movie to go sideways. A thousand terrible directors would have made a horrible movie out of this screenplay with this cast. Uh, And there's just something about his touch. That's just right for it. And I, I, that's, that's the, the closest I can come to articulating what it is. I'm with you. He's hard to quantify. I mean, I know that part of what makes him special is he starts as an editor. And I think you can see in the filmmaking that he, you know, he knows things that beyond uh, Mm -hmm. what a normal director would know in terms of how to put things together. And, And I think that has always been, especially if you think about a scene like 
the the near the end scene in um in uh Harold and Maud where he's cutting back and forth and it's the hospital mm-hmm. and and the other and the other thing that's happening that kind of stuff you're like that's masterful and few few yeah. people I think have the the skill set to think about putting films together in that way and I think that's part of it I think the other thing is he obviously led with character all the time and really brings yeah. very a very humanistic approach to character and I think those yeah. are the, the only things I can really you know quantify about him other than the fact that I love his stuff he is really special in that sense it's hard to yeah. to put him in a box you know yeah agreed agreed all right Brian this was a great top five thank you so much for putting it together thank for you us. guys thank you um let's find out just a little bit about the big doings of the movie business in the year 1973 here is mike with the hollywood minute hollywood freaks from the hollywood scene george roy hills the sting mm-hmm. which reunited the director with his butch cassie and the sundance kid stars paul newman and robert redford won the oscar for best picture of 1973 mm-hmm. acting prizes went to save the tigers jack lemon Despite Jason's attitude, <laughs> the touch of classes, Glenda Jackson, the paper chases, John Houseman, and paper moons, Tatum O'Neill, still the youngest competitive winner in Oscar history. Nice. It's wild when you're like, oh shit, she really deserved it. <laughs> Cause you sort of hear that and you're like, oh, it was a gimme or it yeah. was some sort of a, you know, no, no, no. The sting came in second at the domestic box office behind William Friedkin's The Exorcist, which also topped worldwide grosses. Ryan, uh, a lot of Catholics in them days. Sting and Exorcist, where do we land on those? I'm I a big fan, of both. big fan of both. Yeah. Like them a lot. Yeah. But the big box office story of 73 was the Kung Fu craze. With Five Fingers of Death, an unexpected commercial smash upon its American release by Warner Brothers in March, followed by the domestic releases of Bruce Lee's The Big Boss, incorrectly retitled Fist of Fury, and Angela Mao's Lady Whirlwind, retitled Deep Thrust. Huh. <laughs> Ouch. I wonder why they did that. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. I wonder where that came from. Uh-huh. On May 16th, those films held the top three slots on Variety's weekly box office list. Like, that is nuts. Top three were imported kung fu movies. That's how that's how ready people were for for kung fu movies in 73. Crazy. And then came the release of Enter the Dragon on July 26, less than a week after the untimely death of its star Bruce Lee. That it was that the first like sort of oh he's dead. Let's get this thing and let's get these tickets. Like was that? <laughs> I mean, cuz I know people do that now. Like somebody dies and yeah. and like all of a sudden their records. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden they're selling records on iTunes yeah. and they've got a new compilation. I out, mean, right? I guess like, that technically makes Enter the Dragon the first Bruce exploitation movie, although it wasn't made to be. The, Fair oh, point. wow. Fair point. <laughs> nah, this, this, these were big film reels. It took them more than a yeah. week to ship that shit around and get them printed and everything, That's right? very true. Yes, yes. Or did Bruce do it on purpose? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Enough, specu- enough Bruce Lee speculation. Yes. Enter the Dragon would go on to become the second highest grossing movie of 1973 worldwide with an astonishing $400 million in gross. <sighs> Whoa! Shit. That's insane. <laughs> in 73, man. I know. That's what I'm thinking. Wow. August 17th saw the release of Westworld, which would feature a total of two and a half minutes of pixelated images to represent an android's point of view. Super cool. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Yes. This was the first ever instance of digital image processing in a major motion pr- picture. Congratulations to, to to the future CGI makers of, of the world. It's like, it's way more awesome when you sort of understand that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And porno chic was still a thing in 1973. 
Cue the disco music. Yay. No, this is too early for disco music, isn't it? With The Devil and Miss Jones coming in at number 10 on the year-end top 10 with $15 million in official accounted-for rental. Which means you know <laughs> it made like six times that much and the mafia just took all the rest. That's a good movie. Yeah. Have you seen it yet? I still haven't seen it. Me neither. Oh, really? It's a good movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. I'm sure. The pure cinema guys would like Devil and Miss Jones. Like <laughs> and in film books, Pauline Kael published Deeper Into Movies. Peter Bogdanovich published Pieces of Time. And maybe most importantly, really, Kim Jong-il published On the Art of Cinema. And that is your Hollywood wow. movie. <laughs> I would just like to make it known that all film critics are following in the footsteps of Kim Jong-il. All right. Wow, rude. Really rude, Mike. <laughs> a really mean thing to say to me. Brian Sauer, you ready to do a lightning round? Let's do it. Okay, five minutes on the big clock. You know how it goes. Yay or nay or thoughts or pass. And here we go. Oh, lucky man. Love it. Uh, One of my favorite soundtracks of the 70s. Great, great music. The Outfit. Uh, Fantastic. uh, Just absolutely one of the great crime films of the 70s. And a great, great Joe Don Baker performance. uh, Oh, hell yes. So good. Hell yes. Emperor of the North. Uh, Another one that just about made my list. uh, Aldrich. uh, Two guys, hobos on a train. Could could pair with Scarecrow in some ways. Um, (laughs) Great performance by Lee Marvin in that one. And a young Keith Carradine. I really like it. Oh, and of course, Ernest Borgnine is a guy who loves to kill hobos. He's pretty, (laughs) pretty evil in this movie. The Last American Hero. Uh, great. Another one that just about made the list. Um, Jeff Bridges goes from moonshine running to um, stock car racing, and he's fantastic in it. Underrated movie. Great supporting cast, including Gary Busey and uh, Ed Lauder and William Smith and Diane Cannon again. I think Diane Cannon. Damn. No, I think she's in it. Yeah, I can't remember who the lady is, but um, great movie. Really, really good stuff. Don Siegel's Charlie Varick, newly streaming on Netflix, much to my shock. No way. Did not way. know that. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. Another one that was just inches from being on the list. Uh, fantastic Walter Matthau performance. Another great Joe Don Baker performance, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and Andy Robinson uh, from from um, Dirty Harry is really good in this. Uh, just, uh, you know, guy trying to dodge the mob. After accidentally stealing their money from a mob bank, uh, it's just really, really good. One of Siegel's best movies for me. Agreed. Slither. Um, this one is from Howard Zeef, and this one is a personal favorite of mine. Almost made the list as well. Uh, James Kahn ends up on sort of a road journey to get a bunch of money from his uh, a guy he was in prison with, uh, played by Richard B. Schull, who's a really great character actor who didn't get enough press. Um and he, he comes across like Sally Kellerman and Peter Boyle. And it's just a wacky, weird movie. I really like Zeef. Zeef did um, Hearts of the West, which is another great Jeff oh, Bridges it's so movie. so good. That's yeah. a good one. So he's underappreciated. He also did one called House Calls with Walter Matthau, which I just discovered last year and loved. So he's just a director nobody talks about anymore. And I like him a lot. So good stuff. Fantastic Planet. One of my favorite animated films ever. Um, Very trippy, but still uh, very relevant. Uh, If you see the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. Good stuff. Paper Moon. 
I, that's I should have put that on the list probably, but that's one I feel like more people are aware of. I think that's why I went with some of these others. But yeah, I mean, one of Bogdanovich's best efforts, R.I.P. Ryan O'Neal, uh, uh, easily one of his best that he ever did. And and like Mike said, uh, Tatum really earned it. You know, she is so so good in this movie. Great black and white. I love that he was shooting in black and white in the seventies. Friends of Eddie Coyle. Um. <sighs> I uh, love it. Love it. Um, <laughs> great, great Robert Mitchum, uh, crime film, Peter Yates. It's, it's a fantastic movie. Good stuff. Terrence Malick's Badlands. Another that should probably have been on the list. Um, you know, Malick's first movie and what a way to start it off. I mean, incredibly dark sort of Bonnie and Clyde story, but still incredibly funny too. It's, it's nuts. Great film. Electroglide in blue. Um, fantastic uh, motorcycle cop movie with Robert Blake. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Messiah of Evil. Uh, that this one's gotten a little more love. Last year got a nice Blu-ray from Radiance, which is I definitely Great recommend Blu-ray. Yeah. people picking it up. Um, really, this is what Elric turned me on to. As I'd like, I'd seen it, but I didn't appreciate it until Elric really. Um, made me more aware of it. Just an incredible mood and atmosphere. Uh, great, great horror movie from the early 70s. Really good stuff. Juvenile Court. Uh, this one I just watched, actually, as research for this episode. This is a Wiseman, right? Yeah, Wiseman. Frederick Wiseman is one of my favorite filmmakers, you know, period. But definitely one of the great documentarians of all time. And by the way, all his films, I tout it all the time, but all his films are, almost all of them are on Canopy. And you can yep. watch him there, which is an incredible luxury if you had ever tried to find his films, you know, 10, mm-hmm. 15, 10 plus 15 years ago. Um, so this one is really, really good. Just really powerful stuff dealing with a lot of young kids getting in trouble with the law. And it's that, you know, great fly on the wall observational filmmaking from uh, from from Wiseman. I absolutely love it. Jeremy. Beautiful coming of age uh, love story. Got a shout out. My friend Jonathan Hertzberg in Fun City Editions put out a great Blu-ray of this. Um, Robbie Benson and Glennis O'Connor. Truly heartbreaking. Truly wonderful together. Love it. And finally, just because I never resist an opportunity to say this title, Lolly Madonna XXX. That's a good one too. I, I like that one a lot. Uh, I feel like Ed Lauder's in that one, and yep, uh, and, and Rod Steiger, and uh, yeah, really good. Really like it. This is one that I only knew about because of Elric uh, talking about it on your show, and then I caught a thirty-five millimeter screening of it up here in New York. Nice. Uh, the night the Nighthawk Cinema does uh, the Deuce Film Series. Um, which I try to go to whenever I can. And they had a, I mean, like a battered, pretty fucking red 35 millimeter print of Lolly Madonna XXX. And that was like the right way to see that movie. Nice. All right. Excellent lightning round. Brian nailed it as expected. Uh, where can people follow you on social media and such? Uh, I am um, Bob Freelander on Twitter and Blue Sky and Rupert Pupkin Speaks on Instagram And, you know, we have the Pure Cinema Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Just the Disc Pod, Twitter and Instagram. That's my basic stuff. We also have a Facebook group, um, Pure Cinema Movie Club. People can go and join if they're interested in that. But those are the big ones, you know. And then, of course, the podcast feeds. Wherever you get podcasts, you can listen to Pure Cinema or Just the Disc. 
Yeah, and you should know we should plug too. You guys just launched like a new website for for Pure Cinema, right? That's right, PureCinemaPod.com. I think. I, I apologies. I it's so new. I barely remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we will, um, we will definitely we'll link it either way. And of course, Pure you guys Cinema also podcast. have a podcast. There you go. Sorry. And you guys also have a great page on Letterboxd if uh, if you're not following them there where uh, where they got lots of Oh yeah, stuff I'm on Letterboxd well. as well. Follow me on Letterboxd if you're into that sort of stuff. I'm a, a you know obsessive uh, Letterboxd yes. addict. Yes. Um I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Blue Sky and the aforementioned Letterboxd where you can find under my list the top 5s for every episode of the show. Mike, where can people find you? I am Brainwashed Lib on Twitter and Fifth Column Films on Blue Sky. And of course, if you like the show and think other people might like it too, please leave us a rating and or a review on your podcatcher of choice. There are just so damn many movie podcasts out there, so your recommendations really do help us out a lot. Mike, before we go, what is your parting recommendation for 1973? Okay, so 1973. Everybody's seen The Long Goodbye. I'm going to mm-hmm. just I'm just going to assume mm-hmm. <clears throat> that everybody's yes. seen the long goodbye and if you haven't yes. just start there first okay there you go you got your right you got you even got your yep. shirt on now yep. Good man. if you've seen the long goodbye then next up you should go watch big zapper which is a it's a it's a very soft core although somewhat adult uh take on the character where it's it's a female who plays the the detective and her uh-huh. boyfriend slash assistant, his name is Rock Hard. Uh, yeah. It is. It's that sort of. It's that level of comedy. But it's okay. like we're we're sort of deep enough into the Marlowe thing at that point that the long goodbye is recognized yeah. as a sort of anti take on yeah. the character, right? As a you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Had, I mean, that's the sort of conversation you always have. Yes. We always have about it, right? Okay. Right. Big Zapper is that only not nearly as intellectual, but it is <laughs> it is it is a great fun movie. There's some boobs in it. Like I say, it's soft. It's not anything too crazy. You know, sometimes uh-huh. you'll see it sort of listed in some lists along with like Devil and Miss Jones uh-huh. or some of the other, you know, movies you definitely don't want to watch, like with your mom, maybe not even your girlfriend, you know, that kind of thing, right? right? right. Big Zapper you can put on a part at a party. And as long as most of the people there have seen Long Goodbye, they will enjoy it. That's my recommendation for 73. How about you, buddy? I want to take this opportunity to send out, uh, this is one that, that Mike and I saw together on a double bill at film forum when they did a big New York in the seventies, uh, retro, which was huge research for the book, but a film that I think you're a fan of as well, Brian, that's cops and robbers, uh, which is, which is a terrific, uh, movie about a couple of dissatisfied New York city cops who are watching the city go to shit and know they can't do anything about it. So they decide that they, uh, are uniquely equipped to steal a bunch of money from a wall street firm. And they go about doing exactly that. Um, it's just a lot of fun. It is a really well executed. That's just sort of like, you know, kind of loose limbed seventies urban comedy thing. It's, you know, it's not quite as dark as a little murders, but it's in the same ballpark. Um, and the, the, the performances in it are a lot of fun and it has a really, really satisfying ending. Uh, this is one that was sort of an unknown. I had only, I only saw it because we went to that double feature, Mike, but since then it got a really nice, uh, KL studio classics, Blu-ray. And I would highly recommend picking that one up even on blind buy. Cause it is a fun and funny picture. 
Um, all right. Thank you again for coming on the a show, couple Brian. Of comedies. Look at us wow. hitting, hitting the end of the show with a couple of 1973 comedies. There we go. <laughs> nice. That's good. That was like some yeah. good powdered sugar on top of the pie. I liked it. Love there it. we go. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very good year.